everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I know we missed an episode last week, but we have a bunch of awesome episodes coming up and in the works. I'm excited to introduce what is going to be a two-part series for episodes 76 and 77. I'll quickly introduce our guest. Our co-host today is Dr. Hara Alawadi. Hara is a second-year and newly graduating fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. She's interested in medical education and antimicrobial stewardship, and you may have actually caught some of her prior infographics on Twitter or perhaps on February episodes number three and number six. Our guest discussant today is Dr. Pranita Tama. She is an associate professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases and director of the Pediatric Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at Johns Hopkins. All right. And before we get into the episodes, of course, we have to start with our usual introduction. As everyone's favorite cultured podcast, I'd love to hear about a little piece of culture that brings you happiness. Um, How about you, Howard? Do you want to start us off? Um, as I was saying, I've been trying to think really hard about what to to say in this moment, but um, I think one of the highlights for me this month was going to see uh, Taylor Swift uh, with one of my with a few of my closest friends who flew from all over, um, and it was, it was a nice get together, and it was an amazing night. We got drenched; we were a night too, but it was fun. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> and what about you, Pranita? So. One thing I so something I'm good at is picking locks. Wow! <laughs> um, I can I can break into anything, um, so I take a lot of pride in that. Um, so the other day, I accidentally in one of those sort of recycling bins in the hospital, the shredders. Yeah. Um, I was acc- I accidentally like had my passport in a pile of documents and threw it down there. Um, but I was easily able with, with a, with a paper clip and bobby pin, able to pick the lock and retrieve it. Wow. Um, so, So for the first febrile spy movie, we can bring you in to be the lock (laughs) lock picker. That's amazing. (laughs) Um, well, I will, you know, this is going to be the first of two episodes. We're super excited. This is a very highly requested topic. Um, Hara, I was wondering if you could give everyone sort of like a bird's eye view of what we're going to try to do with these two episodes. Absolutely. Um, so this is going to be multiple parts and it's going to cover the topic of resistant gram negatives, um, particularly enterobacterialis. And there's going to be an alphabet soup of terms, uh, which will be explained along the way, but the focus will be on ESBLs or ex- extended spectrum beta-lactamases, MC organisms, and carbapenem-resistant enterobacterialis, or CREs. So we did not actually plan this, but absolutely welcome the serendipity of preparing these episodes uh, that happened to just be released this month, right after the newest update to the IDSA guidance on the treatment of antimicrobial resistant AMR gram negative infections. So hopefully all of you have been using these for reference. Uh, the newest update consolidates the two prior guidance documents. And I have to say, Pranita, I've been a, a fan from afar. Um, and Har and I, have been fangirling about having you on the episode. As the corresponding author for this document, we we thought we'd pause right before the cases to ask you if there are things that you would highlight as some of the major changes or adjustments that you think ID fellows or ID clinicians should know or look out for. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. It's, it's very exciting to be on this podcast. Um, So, you know, I will say this guidance document is is very fun to make. It's a panel of six nerds who love gram-negative resistance. Um, So we feel very honored to be part of this. I think, so if some of you may recall that initially we had three organism-resistant types and a second document with three others. Um, Moving forward, we decided to combine all six, so ESBLs, AMSI, CRE, drug-resistant pseudomonas, carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter baumannii and stenotrophomonas multifilia all into one document. We initially were thinking about, should we add a chromobacter, burkholderia, some of these particularly non-fermenters that are quite challenging to treat? 
We decided not to this time because there's just not a lot of evidence to guide treatment of those. Um, but moving forward, we'll sort of reassess if that will be the case. Um, for the newest documents, so there's an online version, um, and, and, and the plan is to update these once a year. So this is a 2023 guidance. We'll have a 2024, which hopefully will come out at the beginning of 2024. But the, there's the online version, which may get updated in more real time. So, for example, there was a new drug, Sulbactam Durlobactam, approved for Acinetobacter. So it's possible that for the carbapenem-resistant Acinetobacter, rather than waiting till next year, that section may get updated earlier and we'll sort of put a, a date stamp as to when this change happened. Um, but I think some new quick updates for the 2023 version is, um, and I, I will be honest, we probably changed um, content for every question because <laughs> there's just new evidence constantly coming out. Um, but we did add a table too, which includes the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute um, susceptibility criteria, so the quote breakpoints, just to help clinicians for um, how to find these data, how to make it more accessible. We also included a supplemental section, which is basically giving a little more guidance on where the dosing suggestions came from. Um, there's a lot of very um, bright pharmacists out there who've had um, different opinions and really great suggestions about dosing. So we wanted to kind of at least justify where the dosing we suggest comes from. But, but yeah, I think those are sort of probably the biggest um, new changes to this document. All right. Well, I am going to hand it over for our rapid fire mini cases today. <laughs> awesome. Um, so we'll start with case one. We have a 65-year-old woman who presents to the ED with flank pain and rigors. About a week ago, she was called by her PCP with complaints of dysuria and suprapubic pain, which was typical for her of prior UTI episodes. She was prescribed trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, but did not improve after five days of taking it and started de developing low-grade fevers and mild flank pain. Her PCP then ordered a UA, urine cultures, and blood cultures, and recommended that she switch to levofloxacin pending culture results. However, within the next few hours, she developed nausea and vomiting and wasn't able to take the levofloxacin, so she came to the ED and IV ceftriaxone was started. Um, she has a history of diabetes um, and is on metformin and insulin. She works in the hospital as an oncology floor nurse. She doesn't have any allergies. The ED intern pages the ID consult team once culture results from the PCP office came back. And blood cultures were without growth, but urine cultures grew ceftriaxone-resistant E. coli. Um, and for those who prefer a visual of susceptibilities, those will be up in the consult notes. But a brief rundown of um, the highlights is that the isolate is ceftriaxone-resistant, Cefepime susceptible, Piptase is susceptible, Mirapenem susceptible, Levofloxacin susceptible, and it's resistant to trimsulfa and nitrofurantoin. So our first question is, um, how do you approach reading susceptibility patterns for gram negatives? What do you kind of look for or look at first? So, yeah, you know, I think reading susceptibilities can be a little complex Sometimes I sort of think about, I start off with what the source of infection was. So you told me here it's a urinary source, so there's some antibiotics that maybe will work that wouldn't work for other sources or vice versa. As an example, we think about drugs like nitrofurantone or phosphomycin, which, which concentrate well in the urine, but don't, um, unfortunately, um, don't get into the bloodstream and sort of stay there and um, are, are, unfortunately makes them suboptimal for invasive infections. There's drugs like tigacycline, which are um, don't get excreted through the urine. They have a very large volume of distribution, so they very easily from your, your blood can get distributed into tissues and bones, so they wouldn't make sense. So quickly what I do is I sort of look through the drugs and make sure these are drugs that would get in the urine, um, obviously, my eye goes to the S <laughs> pretty quickly because I know that, unfortunately, if it's resistant, there's a high likelihood that it will have any activity. Um, in this case, we have cefepine, piptazo, mirapenem, levo, gent. You already told me there were some issues with tolerating levofloxacin. Um, I realize this is the only oral option in what's, what's, what's listed in the susceptibility report. So, 
if this patient is ready to be discharged, um, are there some way I could avoid um, having a pick placed? I would definitely reconsider the levo and maybe think about what strategies we could work with with the patient so that some of the nausea and other symptoms are, are, are less problematic. Um, but right now, if the patient was just recently admitted and likely might be here for a day or so while um, managing this infection, there's a few um, drugs listed that are, are worth thinking through. So what, from what you told me, this is an E. coli that's resistant to ceftriaxone. Um, automatically, I worry about the possibility of ESBL production. So as you said, an extended spectrum beta-lactamase producer. Um, now, the bad news are ESBLs can be found in any gram-negative, even non-fermenters, but really any enterobacterialis. So even serratia, citrobacter, enterobacter. But fortunately, the good news is they're really most common in E. coli, Klebnumo, Klebsiella oxytoca, Proteus mirabilis. Um, so at least for these four organisms, if I see that the isolates is ceftriaxone resistant, there's a reasonably high likelihood, if I had to guess, I would say probably about 80, 85% likelihood that it's producing an ESBL. So then automatically I know that there's some drugs where we might see the esper susceptible, um, where the data suggests they may be suboptimal. So examples might be cefepime, piptazo, astrianem. Um, you know, taking these sort of one at a time with cefepime, there, there, there's observational data comparing cefepime versus carbapenems for ESBL-producing bloodstream infections with mixed results, but several, several of them have shown poor outcomes with the use of cefepime, including increased mortality. There was actually a, a, a clinical trial um, conducted in South Korea for patients with um, pyelonephritis from ESB, confirmed ESBL-producing gram-negative organisms, and the trial actually had to be terminated early in the cefepime arm because patients there um, were much lot more likely to have clinical failure compared to patients in, in the piptazo or carbapenem arm. Um, so I think that with the data available, it suggests that cefepime is probably not a great drug for ESBL producers. Um, the drug, unfortunately, just gets hydrolyzed by ESBL enzymes. Um, for piptazo, as you're um, uh, probably aware, there was a large randomized controlled trial a few years ago named the Marino trial, uh, where, they, where the investigators compared piperacil and tazobactam and muropenem for ceftriaxone-resistant E. coli or club pneumo infections. Almost 90% of the isolates in that uh, study were found to be ESBL-producing. So it's basically an ESBL study. Um, and the trial actually had to be terminated early because mortality was so much higher in the piptazo arm. So I think translating that to UTIs, particularly pyelonephritis, because this patient did present with some flank pain, fevers, et cetera, um, is a little trickier. I will say in the Merino trial, most of the bloodstream infections were from a urinary source. They had very low piptazo MICs, like around ones and twos. Um, so it's essentially pyelo with bacteremia for most of those patients, and they did do quite worse with piptazo. So I think reasonable people can have different opinions about piptazo for UTIs. Um, my general approach is if, if it's something like a cystitis and they were a patient was started on piptazo um, and they've nevertheless improved, even though you think it's an ESBL producer, it's probably okay to just complete the course with it. Um, but certainly if this is um, more of a upper urinary tract infection, as in this case, certainly if there's bacteremia, um, I, I would personally feel pretty uncomfortable with using Piptazo for ESBL producers. Um, so I realized that was a very long answer. <laughs> so um, I'll, 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 uh, I'll stop and, and turn it back to you. No, that was great. That was super helpful. And um, I feel like we we go through this a lot with these types of organisms trying to decide between these drugs. Um, so in this particular case, uh, what I'm gathering is that if you can't use levofloxacin here, 
because of the tolerability, your go-to would be miropenem since this is not simple cystitis and because of the poor outcomes with cefepime and piptazo through the Marina trial. Um, I was curious about your thoughts on the kind of reanalysis from the Marina trial after they looked at the susceptibilities with broth microdilution and if that changed your impression at all or what you thought of that. Yeah, no, thank you for asking that. And I will also, I should clarify too that, you know, erdapenem, I wasn't sort of seeing it uh, on the susceptibility report, but that is also a carbapenem that's a great ESBL active agent. It's obviously more convenient for patients with its its less frequent dosing. Um, and so that, that would actually be a nice choice, particularly if this patient wasn't able to go home on any oral agent. I think this would be much more convenient as a once a day drug. Um, so, yeah, so it, your question about the Merino is great. Um, as you may recall, in the um, initial study, in the initial trial, the mortality was 12% in the Piptazo arm versus 4% in the Meropenem arm. 30-day uh, mortality, this was, significant, this was statistically significant. Um, during the trial for convenience, they actually um, let labs do sort of what, various approaches for susceptibility testing. But afterwards, the isolates that were saved from most of the patients in the study were sent to a central lab. And broth microdilution, which is considered the reference standard for susceptibility testing, was performed. And there were a portion of isolates that appeared to be susceptible to piptazo initially, but, but were not on reanalysis. Um, and basically, when they did redid the evaluation, what they found was the 30-day mortality was 11% in the piptazo arm, 4% in the miropenem arm, so no longer statistically significant. But what my feeling, um, as well as the other panelists involved in the IDSA guidance, was that 11% versus 4 even if it's not quite statistically significant anymore, the direction was still concerning to us. And, it, and the, the study did a very nice job in the initial paper that was published in JAMA of looking at subgroups, E. coli versus CLEB, urinary source versus not urinary source, really sick versus not so sick. And whichever way they sliced it, um, the, the general trend, either was statistically significant or a general trend, was just poorer outcomes in the piptazo arm. So we feel uncomfortable definitely for bacteremia um, and even for pyelonephritis. Um, we're still just not enthusiastic about using piptazo. That makes sense. That's fair. And how about aminoglycosides in this situation? I feel like we don't use that often, but does come up sometimes. Would, be, would that be an option here? Yeah. So, you know, admittedly, we have not really used aminoglycosides for full treatment courses either because of the obvious nephrotoxicity issues. Lots of patients just can't tolerate them. You know, I think that the once one dose, single dose aminoglycoside for cystitis, especially just these uncomplicated cystitises, is, is pretty intriguing. We know that even though there's not robust studies looking at this, um, there was a meta-analysis of several studies. Um, th you know, there's heterogeneity in the studies, and some of the quality of evidence is not great. But with what we know about aminoglycosides, they concentrate very well in the urine, hence their toxicity issues um, in the kidneys, um, that if this saves patients from being admitted to the hospital for something like a cystitis, and sometimes there's just not a lot of oral options, it could be a nice idea for lower tract urinary disease. For pyelonephritis, again, there's not a lot of data. There was a study from Israel where it was um, done in an institution and outcomes seemed to be reasonably good. Um, and I think that if a patient is able to handle the renal toxicities that could come with you know, aminoglycosides for, for several days, probably around seven, five to seven days, I would guess, for pyelonephritis, um, it might be a reasonable alternative. Um, I think if you're doing especially once daily and maybe there's a way for the patient to come in once a day for the dosing, obviously, you know, that requires some infrastructure to be an option. Um, but uh, if, if, if I, I think that there's observational data and there's places that, that do this where they seem to have reasonably good outcomes. Um, but I do also think, you know, again, 
it's going to be one of those situations where um, there's only going to be a certain subpopulation that'll be able to tolerate something like this. So personally, I, I still would prefer in a patient like this, if we have to go the IV route, I'd probably prefer a drug like an ertapenem with the less toxicities, you know, once a day convenient for patients. But it is nice to know, and I think particularly with the aminoglycosides for the uncomplicated cystitis, or even just the cystitis in general, that this might be um, a reasonable approach to uh, for, for treatment. Awesome. Thank you. Um, this patient ended up, I think, getting mirapenem inpatient. We don't have ertapenem on formula for um, inpatients. And once she um, became afebrile and improved, she was transitioned to quinolones. So we know these topics are quite dense. At the end of the episode, well, both episodes, we will quickly run through some of the highlights that are relevant to the case or the mini cases, and as sort of a refresher for what is addressed in the most updated IDSA guidance. So then we'll switch gears and go on to case two. We have a 45-year-old woman who's presenting with perforated diverticulitis and underwent an X-lap with sigmoidectomy, intraoperative cultures grew Klebsiella erogenes and apicillin-susceptible E. fecalis, Blood cultures grew the same Klebsiella erogenes. The patient received piperacillin tazobactam periop and was continued on that. The surgery resident calls asking for guidance on antibiotic choice since, quote, an AMPC flag came up on the microbiology report for the Klebsiella erogenes, and the resident asks if she needs to switch or change antibiotics. As a quick recap of the susceptibilities of the Klebsiella erogenes in the blood, it is ceftriaxone susceptible, it is cefepime susceptible, and the MIC is uh, 1, piperacillin tazobactam susceptible, mirapenem susceptible, levofloxacin susceptible. Um, so in this particular case, um, how, what are MCEs? And how are they different from ESBL-producing organisms? Is there an overlap? And how would you approach choosing antibiotics in this patient? Thanks. Yeah, so um, so AMCs are beta-lactamase enzymes, so sort of like ESBLs in that regard. So as beta-lactamase enzymes, they have the possibility of hydrolyzing certain beta-lactam antibiotics. Um, so MCs are produced at basal levels, so at, at some levels, by a lot of gram-negative organisms. They're um, necessary for um, bacterial cell wall recycling. So they actually have a purpose that's beneficial to the bacteria normally. There's some bacteria like Pseudomonas where there's always some MC enzymes that are present. Um, it also explains intrinsic resistance of Pseudomonas to certain antibiotics. For the enterobacterialis, though, it's a bit trickier. Um, sometimes we see what a plasmid-mediated AMC. So what this means is there's a plasmid that might carry an ESBL gene, it might carry an AMC gene, and when that AMC is present, there will be some drugs like ceftriaxone that are never expected to be active. So if you see an E. coli where ceftriaxone is resistant, it's most likely ESBL related, it could be an AMPC as well. But it's not very challenging in terms of what to treat with because if the AMPC is on a plasmid, it will always be resistant to ceftriaxone. Another way that AMPCs um, enzymes are produced is that there is several, several genes involved in um, regulating AMPC enzyme levels in bacteria. Um, if there are certain mutations in these genes, it might be that the AMPC is always being overproduced. Um, we say that's stable derepression. And if that's happening, once again, you'll have a lot of AMPC produced. It'll always be resistant to the drug ceftriaxone. So again, not really a, a clinical dilemma of what to do. And you almost don't need to think about this mechanism when you look at a susceptibility report because you'll see R next to the ceftriaxone. I think what the tricky um, option is, is there are certain bacteria, so the classic ones are um, Enterobacter cloacae, Citrobacter frondii, and Klebsiella erogenes. 
Um, so th for those three organisms, and, and we know the most about those, there may be others that behave like this, but this is where the preponderance of data is. So for those three bacteria, what's tricky is they may look susceptible to ceftriaxone, but sometimes if there's some AMC being produced, there's some recycling of the cell wall, which we expect as part of this AMC enzyme being present, it can leave um, certain byproducts of the cell wall that basically eventually can upregulate AMC production. Um, this seems most notorious in, with third generation cephalosporins like ceftriaxone, cefetaxime, which we don't have in the United States anymore, and ceftazidime. Um, and basically what happens there is you can have an isolate like your patient has a Klebsiella orogenes in the bloodstream that looks susceptible to ceftriaxone. If you start ceftriaxone on this patient, it's possible we think about 20% of the time um, is, is what the sort of average across studies seems to be, that, that Klebsiella orogenes will no longer be susceptible to ceftriaxone. It's not an absolute that there's no way you should start ceftriaxone on your patient. Um, but I think if you're talking about a reasonably serious infection, and I would say a bloodstream infection falls in, into that category, and there's about a one in five chance that the patient can fail therapy, um, many people believe that it's probably better to avoid ceftriaxone in these situations. I think for... Um, uncomplicated urinary tract infections, for example, maybe it's less of an issue because these are not as serious infections. Um, you might be more willing to take that chance of possible clinical failure, um, again, because the severity of the illness is not as high. Um, certainly things like meningitis, endocarditis, I personally wouldn't take the chance, um, especially when we have a drug like cefepime, which we can talk about, um, which actually seems to be very effective against these AMC-producing organisms. And it might make sense to just pick a different drug that you know um, the AMC issue is not going to be a concern for. And could you uh, talk a little bit about um, the cefepime and when you would choose cefepime versus carbapenems in this situation if you, if you had to, if it's a serious infection, let's say? Yeah, so it's, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, just to step back a little, there are certain drugs like, for example, aminopenicillins, amoxicillin, ampicillin, that are, are pretty potent AMC inducers. So in the presence of these antibiotics, the AMC enzyme gets upregulated, there's more of it being produced. But it's not really a huge problem because we know that even with tiny amounts of AMC, aminopenicillins would never work anyway. For, for, you know, Enterobacter cloicae, Citrobacter frondii, Klebsiella orogenes. So it's kind of like, doesn't really matter. Um, there's organisms, there's antibiotics like imipenem, which are also potent AMC inducers, but imipenem is able to withstand um, hydrolysis from an AMC enzyme. So even though it might be more likely to rev up the system, it's also likely to remain a, an effective treatment option. Cefepime has the nice um, benefit of both being not a great inducer of AMC enzymes, but even in their presence, if there's a lot of them being produced, it stays active. Um, so from my read of the data, both the, the in vitro data, the clinical data, I have not seen concerning safety signals with cefepime for, for treating AMC infections. Um, so in our hospital at Johns Hopkins, uh, if we have patients that have these sort of three big organisms likely to produce AMCs, um, whether it's a bloodstream infection, endocarditis, meningitis, we do feel comfortable giving cefepime. Um, obviously, we always dose optimize just in general. It's always a good idea. Um, but we don't feel the need to, to resort to a carbapenem if we see that it's cefepime susceptible because um I'm just not aware of, of data suggesting that cefepime is likely to be associated with a poorer outcome, even for some of these very serious infections like meningitis or endocarditis. And how would you um, think about cefepime susceptibility here if it's, let's say, the MIC is um, two or higher or four, would you still 
is that a situation where you would lean more towards carbapenems or have you had experience using cefepime in those situations too? Yeah, so you're asking a really good question that's a little tricky. Um, so there was a study from Taiwan several years ago where basically what they showed was that um, they looked actually only at intravascular cloacae, but isolates with MICs of four or eight were much more likely to be producing ESBL enzymes um, than isolates with cefepime MICs of two or less. And they also found that in this MIC range of four to eight, um, where ESBLs were more likely, if the patients with Entrobacter cloacae, cefepime MIC 4 to 8, had, a, had ESBL confirmed, so they did testing to confirm there was an ESBL, and they received cefepime, um, there was very poor clinical outcomes compared to if the MICs were 4 to 8 and an ESBL was not produced. So basically what this suggested was in this single center in Taiwan, um, bacteria that had Enterobacter cloacae that had MICs of 4 or 8 for cefepime had a reasonably high chance of producing an ESBL, and if they received cefepime as treatment, the outcomes were poor. Um, it's, it was very hard when we make the, made the guidance, so we sort of timestamped this 2023 version um, to December 31st. That's when we sort of handed over everything to IDSA um, to, to, to you know, make it pretty for the website and, and so forth. Um, at that time, we didn't have U.S. data, or I should say we had very scant U.S. data to get a sense of how, how much does this translate to the U.S.? Do we have a problem with these three organisms? Again, Enterobacter cloicae, Citrobacter fundii, Klebsiella orogenes, um, producing ESBL enzymes if the cefepime MIC is 4 or 8. It wasn't entirely clear. So last version of the guidance, we suggested caution with prescribing a carbapenem with MICs in this range. Um, this time, we do mention that there's limited data um, to sort of inform this decision, um, and that basically the exact wording we use is limited data suggests that carbapenem may be preferred for infections caused by these organisms when the cefepime MIC is four or higher, assuming carbapenem susceptibility is demonstrated. ESBL co-production may be present, but data continue to evolve. I will say personally that since the timestamp of December 31st of this document, um, in our own institution at Johns Hopkins, we actually, um, for a collection of E. cloacae, Citrobacter frondii, Cleborogenes isolates with MICs in this, ra this range, cefepime MICs of 4 or 8, we performed whole genome sequencing, and we actually didn't find a single one that contained an ESBL gene. There was also another study, a nice study that came out, but so this study was in OFID and another study in OFID. And in the second study in OFID, um, basically what they found was that they compared these three organisms, MICs of four or eight, if they received cefepime versus a carbapenem and there was no difference. Now what's not clear in that study is um, what the prevalence of ESBL production was, but uh, of the fours and eights. So my interpretation, if I had a wish list and it was just Pranita making the decisions um, and not a, a, a panelists where we kind of have to work together. And of course, these two studies were published after the, everything went in for this document. Moving forward, I would actually feel comfortable for cefepime MICs of four or eight using um, cefepime uh, for E. cloacae, Citrobacter frondii, Cleborogenes. I would definitely suggest at least doing two grams Q8 hours and preferably as an extended infusion. Um, but but moving forward, that's actually going to be my approach. So I, I, I um, direct our, our stewardship program on the pediatric side at Hopkins, but this is what we've decided for ourselves locally moving forward. Um, and I'm hoping if, if we all agree after reviewing the data, if there's no objections, um, this is what my hope would be for the next version of the guidance. That's interesting that it'll move us towards um, carbapenem-sparing approaches, maybe. Um, in this case, the resident asks about, uh, the surgical resident asks about using peptazo um, as opposed to cefepime and mirapenem because they would like to consolidate treating the efecalis from the intraop cultures and the Klebsiella erogenes. 
what's kind of been the data or approach towards using Piptazo with MC organisms or high-risk MC organisms? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. I think the, the main answer with Piptazo is we're not entirely sure. I will say there have been some studies where they look at um, in the presence of plasmid-mediated AMPC genes, so we know that there's lots of AMPC being produced, in infections with those genes, when they look at Piptazo susceptibilities, they tend to be increased. And, and there's you know one study I'm thinking about where they had sort of one copy of an AMPC gene, and once they had multiple copies, you start to see those Piptazo MICs continue to increase, which suggests that Tazobactam is not very good at protecting piperacillin, in the presence of excessive AMC production. The observational data are limited. There was a meta-analysis which showed no difference between Piptazo carbapenems for organisms likely to produce AMC enzymes. But if you look carefully, there were a couple of individual studies there that suggested poorer outcomes with Piptazo, but was statistically significant. So I, I, unfortunately, we don't know. And for the Merino, um, I think this was the Merino 2 study, in the numbers. <laughs> for the Merino 2 study, which is basically looking at um, certain bloodstream infections, some of them are sort of the more concerning organisms for MC production, like the E. cloacae, um, C. frondii, and others, and, and uh, Klebsiella orogenes. And they did include Providentia, Morganella, um, Serratia, which are probably less likely to produce MCs, um, less than 5%, based on what the literature suggests. Um, and um, randomizing those patients to Piptazo or Mirapenem, they didn't find a difference in the overall composite. The composite included 30 to mortality, clinical failure, microbiologic failure, and microbiologic relapse. So many different things. When you kind of look at each of those outcomes individually, the direction kind of goes in, in opposite directions for each of these outcomes. So again, it's it's good they did the study. I think it's important to pilot data to help inform future studies. But I don't think even though this was a clinical trial, it gives us the answer of how Piptazo performs. So getting back to your patient, if we were talking about a bloodstream infection with cleborogenes and it was susceptible to cefepime, susceptible to Piptazo, I would still feel much more comfortable using cefepime. I feel like there's much more robust data saying Cefepime is a good drug for AMC producers by the enterobacterialis period. Piptazo, I think, I'm not convinced from the in vitro data that Piptazo is a good drug. The clinical data is a little mixed. I would say that I'm certainly, you know, a, a physician who wants to be practical with management and doesn't want to put a patient on too many drugs if they don't need it. So I think if your patient is at the point that the source control is reasonable, you have this polymicrobial infection. We know Piptazo is a good drug for epicalis. I think it would be fine to prescribe Piptazo, but certainly if, if the patient is um, not having the clinical improvement you're hoping for, you know, then it's sort of reassessing, is this a source control issue? Is there some kind of undrained abscess or something else that needs to be explored? Or is this simply failure of the Piptazo? And certainly, as long as you're kind of have that in the back of your mind, you let the, the surgeons or whoever else is involved in the care of this patient know that should the outcomes not be where you want them to be, the clinical recovery, at that point, then I would suggest changing to, I don't know, maybe in this case, a carbapenem or something. Um, because if you do cefepime, then you're going to need something additionally targeting the, 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 um, the callus, and then it becomes kind of complicated. Um, but yeah, but that would be my approach. I'd probably do, I think Piptazo is fine, um, but if the patient's not improving and you don't think it's a source control issue, I might consider switching to a drug like Imipenem, which has good efecalis and um, coverage against this organism. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, e e Enterococcus keeps ruining the elegance of I feel like our antibiotic choices. Of all of them, it always does. I know, and I feel like I need to like look it up every time to remind myself the difference in coverage with mirapenem versus imipenem for enterococcus. Yeah. Um, but, but I, you know, I, I guess it is better with imipenem. So, <laughs> yeah, that's probably the only time, except for NTMs, where um, I end up using that drug. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Um, okay, that's awesome. Thank you. 
So we have our last case of this part. So case three, a 77-year-old man with a history of urinary stones is admitted to the floor with fevers, leukocytosis, and a CT abdomen showing an obstructing urinary stone in the left kidney with perinephric stranding. He is hemodynamically stable, well-appearing, and awaiting a urology procedure. Both urine and blood cultures grew Morganella morganii. One of the residents remembered that this was one of the spice or spice M organisms and asked for help in choosing a regimen. Um, So as a review of the susceptibility pattern here, we have a Morganella that is ceftriaxin susceptible, cefepime susceptible, with an MIC of less than two, Piptazo susceptible, Mirapenem susceptible, Levofloxacin resistant. Um, so in this case, we we talked a little bit about MC organisms. Um, maybe we could reflect back on the change in the framework from the spice organisms and how you would approach this case um, and what you would consider like a high bacterial burden to warrant not using ceftriaxone, for example. Yeah, thank you. So this is, um, yeah, this is a great case. Um, and, you know, to answer your first question about the nomenclature issue, um, every hospital seems to have its like favorite acronym, we're a spice <laughs> hospital or a space hospital. Um, I believe University of Maryland is a spice hospital. <laughs> In Europe, they have ESPCM or ESCPM. Um, so th- I think there's a lot of different variations on this. Um, but the bottom line and what we try to convey in the guidance is that a lot of these sort of older acronyms that many of us were taught are probably not as accurate as we need them to be. We give a couple of examples in there where Citrobacter frondii um, has a chromosomal AMC gene. So it has the possibility of increased AMC production, but Citrobacter coceri does not. Um, and you could imagine if you're thinking, see, Citrobacter, it automatically sort of subjects every citrobacter to being escalated to cefepime when maybe ceftriaxone is perfectly fine. Um, another example we give is that um, for, for, for some of these acronyms, either the I or the P stands for indole positive proteus species. Um, and currently indole positive proteus is proteus vulgaris and proteus penari, um, neither of which um, have chromosomal MC genes. They're not expected to have chromosomal MC genes. But in the past, um, there used to be, um, in the indole-positive proteus, it used to include proteus retgeri, proteus morganii, which have now been renamed to providentia retgeri, morganella morganii. Um, But so it's basically meant to say that there are, indole-positive proteus are not expected to be MC producing so that the acronym is not really accurate anymore. Um, so, you know, to answer the first question, I think acronyms in general for these organisms is probably not great. Um, I guess if you could come up with something for C. frondii, Enterobacter cloacae cleborogenes, that's great. <laughs> um, but I couldn't think of anything that was um, very uh, memorable with those three. So maybe by the end of this podcast, someone will come up with that. I'm going to say that, what's it called? Heck yes. Sorry. Heck yes. yes. The okay. heck yes came up as an acronym that included um, hafnia and yersinia. In, yersinia and Yonge. The problem with that has been, we don't, I think for hafnia, unfortunately for those three organisms, there's just not enough data to tell us how big of an issue it is. Um, you know, certainly with Citrobacter youngae and Yersinia enterocolitica, there's laboratory-based data suggesting it could have a chromosomal MC gene, but we have no idea how this translates clinically. Obviously, these are very rare organisms to recover. Um, so it felt a little like we're basically lumping some organisms in. We're really not sure with organisms where we feel like we have good data. In the past, I think we were worried about Morganella, Serratia, which I guess I should be pronouncing Serratia, but I'm, I'm still a Serratia person. Um, <laughs> but uh, Providentia, there were some of these organisms that have chromosomal MC genes. It seems like the likelihood of um, increased expression for MC for these organisms is less than the E. cloacae, Citrobacter frondii, and Cleborogenes. 
Um, from the data, as I've sort of suggested before, it seems like the likelihood that um, a morganella that's ceftriaxone susceptible after exposure to ceftriaxone will become resistant is probably about 5% or less. Um, this is both clinical data and some in vitro data that have looked at sort of how likely it is for these mutants to develop. So the bottom line is, I, for the three main organisms, we definitely need an acronym because I, I can't say them anymore. Where it's closer to 20% of the time, ceftriaxone resistance would occur, we think, from what, we have, what data we have. For Morganella, Serratia, um, Providentia, it seems like that percentage is 5% or less. So I think for most of us, particularly for bloodstream infections, things where there's reasonable source control, there's ways to watch the patient clinically, we're probably fine with just going off the susceptibility report. If it's susceptible to ceftriaxone, like in this case, I would use it. If we're talking about a meningitis, endocarditis, something where maybe it's more serious and that 5% might be too much perhaps, then, then I think it's perfectly fine to use cefepine. So I think it's fair to use your clinical judgment and how you, your overall gestalt for that patient. For organisms like the hafnia example, we just don't have enough data. So I kind of lump the hafnia, citrobacter, yungae, yersinia, enterocolitica, the, the yes of the, or yes of the heck yes, heck yeah, the yeah of the heck yeah. <laughs> I kind of lump them in with the morganella serratia, where for most of the time, I'm fine just going off the susceptibility results. But if, if I'm very worried about the patient, poor source control, et cetera, I might be more inclined to use a cefepine rather than a ceftriaxone, even if it's susceptible to ceftriaxone. Okay. And would you consider this case where it's a bloodstream infection with an infected stone um, where they're awaiting, I guess, a urology procedure for source control? Would you consider that a high burden, bacterial burden that you would initially use something besides ceftriaxone, or would you be comfortable using ceftriaxone in this case as well? So personally, for me, I would be okay with ceftriaxone. And I say that because for most infections, you know, in the gram negative world, at least, you expose someone to a drug, there probably is a 5% or so chance resistance will occur. That doesn't seem like that striking of a number to me. I mean, you think of your patients with pseudomonas, you start ceftaz, it's resistant in a week, then cefepime, and then it's resistant, and then mirapent, right? So I think 5% to me is a chance I'd be willing to take. Um, so I would start the patient on ceftriaxone, um, you know, following clinically, assuming everything is good. I'd, you know, that, that should be the end of it. Because 95% likelihood of success with a drug is quite high. Um, so I would be less inclined to consider this uh, as a, a case where I would um, feel the need to do something like a cefepine. But again, I would never fault anybody. And in, in the guidance, we use the word suggest throughout, not recommend, just to give people wiggle room because every patient's different. Their social situation is different. Maybe he lives alone and if something were to happen, it wouldn't be easy for him to get medical care. So there might be other reasons like that where it makes sense to just do the cefepine. Um, but I personally would feel fine with this using ceftriaxone. I think outside of endocarditis and CNS, and maybe to be honest, it might only be for CNS, but I don't know. I haven't encountered that yet with, with Morganella <laughs> endocarditis, but I, I, I would be inclined to just go off of the susceptibility results in picking a drug. Okay, that's great. I feel like that's still um, an evolving culture in our hospital and people have varying comfort levels. With, with using ceftriaxone in these cases. Um, yeah. I think that a lot of these sort of phrases or what we've been taught are just take a really long time for practice to change. Yeah. And, it, and it's okay because I think um, hopefully over time we'll have more data and be able to say some of this more confidently. Um, but, you know, the truth is for some of these organisms like the Mor Morganella, we just don't have enough data in the literature to really say with absolute certainty, ceftriaxone will be fine. Um, the 5% estimate is based on not very good data, um, but you could flip that and say that the, the data suggesting that ceftriaxone won't work is also based on very poor data, so yeah. Um, yeah. Great, well, thank you so much. That was, uh, that was a wrap on ESBL organisms and AMPC and a wrap on part one.
Okay, so as promised, I just wanted to give a summary of some of the high yield take home points from the management of these cases. And these are also summarizing the, the IDSA AMR guidance based on the most recent update. So you can find that guidance linked online and we'll also put it in both the episode and consult notes. Case one in this episode, part one, featured ESBL E. coli pyelonephritis. Preferred antibiotics for the treatment of complicated UTI or pyelonephritis caused by ESBL and Arbacterales. The preferred, if you can use them, would be trimethoprim sulfa, ciprofloxacin, or levofloxacin. And then carbapenems are preferred when resistance or toxicities preclude use of those first-line agents, so trimethoprim sulfa or fluoroquinolones. That would be ertapenem, miropenem, imipenem. Another alternative is aminoglycosides for a full treatment course. Just a reminder that the single-dose aminoglycosides and oral phosphomycin are listed as alternative treatments for uncomplicated ESBL cystitis. We did briefly touch on the preferred antibiotics for non-urinary tract ESBL infection, with a preference for carbapenem, specifically miropenem or imipenem if critically ill. Piptazo is considered Okay, for uncomplicated cystitis, if already started and the patient is improving, although the IDSA panel does not recommend Piptazo for serious infections or bloodstream infection. And then Cefepime is not recommended by the IDSA panel for pyelonephritis or complicated UTI or treatment of infections outside the urinary tract. Although, if there is clinical improvement on empiric Cefepime in the setting of uncomplicated cystitis, you could leave it as is. The next two cases in this episode featured AMPC. So case two was high-risk AMPC bloodstream infection with Klebsiella erogenes. Case three was Morganella pyelonephritis and bacteremia. The big take-home here is that the main Enterobacterialis organisms at moderate to high risk for clinically significant AMPC production include these three, Enterobacter cloacae, Klebsiella erogenes, and Citrobacter frundii. Specifically, remember, not Citrobacter coceri. A big thank you to Pranita for talking a little bit about the concepts of inducers versus substrates and the challenges of some of our acronyms for AMPC organisms, whether that's space, spice, ESCPM, or heck yes. And so cefepime is suggested for infections caused by organisms at moderate to high risk for significant AMPC production. Thank you so much to Howard and Pranita for joining Febrile today and starting us off on this awesome series. We'll be back with part two in two weeks. In the meantime, don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, to find the consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, which we're continuing to update, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.